the, the metaphor that gets used is if you think about an orchestra, lots of different instruments playing different notes at different times in a different rhythm, and it produces music. It produces the harmony of the music. And actually, that's how society needs to work. We need to make space for all of this diversity to come together to produce music. But of course, it only does that if we're all playing the same piece. Hello and welcome to another Human Givens podcast. I'm Jay Baker and I'm part of the Human Givens team. My guest in this episode is Gareth Hughes, a Human Givens psychotherapist. Gareth is the educational director at the Human Givens College. He's also a researcher and nationally recognised expert in student university mental health and well-being. Gareth's contribution to high quality student learning has seen him awarded the fellowship of the Human Givens Institute, as well as a principal fellowship of the Higher Education Academy. For many years, Gareth worked in psychological well-being at the University of Derby, where he carried out research into the well-being of students and the link between learning and well-being and also emotions and learning. His research can be seen in publications in various academic journals. And today, Gareth and I are going to be discussing human givens and a flourishing society. So, Gareth, thank you so much for joining me today. It's okay. So maybe we can start with where your interest in this first really began to germinate. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's probably a question I've been interested in for many years. I mean, I should stress right at the very beginning, you know, I'm, I'm not a philosopher of society. I'm not a political scientist. So I'm not coming at that from that kind of expert opinion. And there are lots of people who could talk about the things we're going to talk about this morning and have written about it far more eloquently than I can. But I guess the... My interest, and it starts from the work that I did on the University Mental Health Charter. So this was a piece of work which we published a few years ago, and which is now running as a kind of award scheme for universities where we were, people may well know, there's been an increasing concern about student mental health, but also staff mental health within universities. And so we were trying to work out, well, actually, what is it that we need to do about this? What is it we need to, to do to improve student mental health? And you start by thinking about, well, what are the services we need to provide? And very quickly realized, well, actually, that's not going to be all of the answer because lots of people don't access services. Services don't necessarily work for everybody. And actually, what we want really to do is prevent people getting ill in the first place. And then you start looking at, well, what are the things that affect people's mental health and that we need to look at? And actually, as you start going through the evidence, it becomes clear that, well, that's everything because it's it's physical environment. It's the environment you're around. It's the culture you're in. It's the things you do on a day-to-day basis. It's how you socially engage. And so therefore, it, for universities, it becomes, well, it's everything that you do. And that then leads to us developing what we call the whole university approach, mm-hmm. which we then tried to capture in the chart. We tried to look at everything that universities do and think about, well, actually, if you were supporting mental health and well-being through this activity, what would you be doing? How would you do that? And, and we established kind of principles of good practice in each of those areas. But what kind of became clear through thinking about all of that was I, I started then thinking about, well, this, there's a lot of learning we're generating from this. And I wonder if there's other areas of society we could use this for. But then my thought kind of went and that kind of naturally starts thinking about, well, actually, could we think about this more broadly? Because universities in themselves are kind of mini societies anyway. You know, people don't just study there. They also live there. They literally live within their university. They work there. They, they have their social life through their university. They, universities are organized you know, more like societies than they are like organizations. They don't really work the way organizations do. You have a kind of central government. You have a civil service. You have, it works in that way. And so actually maybe there's, there are some things from this that we could actually think about when we come to think about society more broadly and the issues that are going on there. So I think that's 
that's really where my ideas germinated. And, and, and in order to do the charter, I, I started having to read and, and, and re-engage with lots of the kind of this philosophical discussions going back, you know, thousands of years about what makes a good society. So that's really where my entry point to all of this is, I think. Yeah, yeah. So what does a healthy society look like? Well, that's a very contentious question. <laughs> and it really depends on what you mean. Which is one of the reasons it's it's kind of so interesting. I get I get attracted towards questions that are um, difficult and complicated. I get quite excited about them, and, and and I guess that's one of the reasons I get attracted towards all of this. But if you think about a mentally healthy society, then it it kind of does have to think about all of those aspects I talked about earlier. How how do we actually get our heads around thinking about everything that we do and its relationship to mental health overall? And so I guess that's then where I from my perspective, being a human given therapist, I then started to wonder, well, actually, could, could human given theory help with this? Could the way we think about human givens actually help us think about what does a mentally healthy society look like? How do we go about creating that? And is that the thing actually we should be doing? Actually, is that the thing that's helpful? Or actually, should we be thinking about other things and then mental health will, will arrive as a result of all of that? Because I think I think most of us at the moment would acknowledge that even pre-pandemic in the West, there were some worrying trends that were coming up. We were seeing rising levels of mental illness. We're seeing, even aside from mental illness, just rising levels of unhappiness generally, more political conflict, more anger, more of people not being able to see each other's point of view, and lots of then politics being done in kind of abstracts and nominalizations where we then end up not even talking about the same things and we can't even agree what we're talking about in many cases. And that's not a helpful place to be. I grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles and I know only too well that when you end up with a society that can't agree and can't speak about the same things, you end up in a very, very bad place and you can end up there very quickly. You know, the Troubles went from not existing to being full-blown in about six months. Society collapsed very quickly and it does collapse very quickly when, when those things go. So actually, it, it's not a good place to be when you can't agree what your story is. Mm, mm. So, I mean, it, it does really feel as if there's there's been such a decline in the cohesiveness of community in general and lots of different pockets doing lots of different things and actually maybe if they really sat down and understood there might be some shared under- shared ideas there but they're all coming at it from from different priorities i guess yeah i think that's right and i think that the for me the bit of this that's really important and again this is one of the insights that we can take from human givens but i guess also from the fact that I come from a very storytelling based culture is the importance of story in this, because we know as individuals that, that our stories are incredibly important to us. And people like Lisa Philman Barrett have written about the fact that you know, the idea that actually the stories we, we absorb as children shape how we think about the world, but even shape us at a very, you know, almost neurological level, like they create the, the connections in our own, in our own brains and, and the shape of our minds really. So they're important to us as individuals, but they're really important to us as societies as well and as communities, because you know, there's, there is a theory that the reason that religion appears to have appeared across the world at the same time is because it, it had such a useful social function in creating a story that binded, you know, we didn't have to sit around the campfire at night going, well, what is this right or is it wrong? What should we do about it? Because religion gave us an answer. We believe this, therefore, this is the right way to behave. Therefore, if someone's doing this and it's not the right way to behave, we need to act. It just simplified and made everything easier. And so we need those stories to give us that sense of social cohesion, as you were saying, but we, we, we have to have a way of holding together and we need a kind of shared story because if we can't agree who we are and where we're going and what is right and what is wrong, then 
then we we are in trouble as a society. And again, if you think about, you know, one of the things that tells me that this is happening, if you look about the arguments about history that have started happening over the last few years, you know, whether empire was a good or bad thing, or whether the National Trust should talk about the fact that many of its properties were built on the profits from slavery, or, you know, all of this kind of stuff about whether, you know, people reacting very angrily to that idea. When you start having those arguments about your past, it tells you that we don't agree on what our story is for now. And we're worried about our, what our story is going to be in the future. So we're really arguing about our future when we have those arguments about our history. And again, in Northern Ireland, you know, the arguments were, you know, I, I used to have to be sent away to relatives because there was a march on my street every July that was celebrating a battle that took place in 1690 and that led to physical violence in the present. So when you start having those arguments about your history, again, it's a concerning thing. So we, that concern about story is really then, again, one of the things that attracts me towards this is to think about, well, actually, do we need a new story? Do we need some kind of story framework Mm. that can help us to think about what's going on and what we're going to do next? And and one that's clear rather than one that is, in effect, what you're talking about here is a, a form of censorship. Yeah, yeah, well, there could be a form of censorship, but it's also, I just think about, there's a really interesting thing. Richard Bentle's been doing some really interesting work at the moment, looking at political views and kind of thinking styles. And and some of this, I think, is also about safety and security in, in terms of our story. And some people feel very comfortable with a complex worldview, and some people want it to be simple and clear. And there's a conflict in that, and there's a balance point in that that we need to find as well. And so people then react on both sides of it, even struggling to really even just understand how people on the opposite side of the argument can even think in that way. It just makes no sense. How can you get to that point? But it's coming out of a different mindset of looking for different things in your story, either either looking for the certainty and the surety of a simple story or looking for something that can actually engage with, with the complexity that you see in the world. I think this is one of the reasons we see such splits in view between young people and older people right now. What, what are the bigger dividing lines in terms of political view at the moment in our society is actually between young and old. But if you talk to you, I mean, we both work with students, their level of comfort with complexity around things like sexuality and gender, it's just, it's just not even a thing that they need to think about. It's just comfortable. It's part of their life. It's part of the universe. It's just a thing that is that kind of idea of spectrum of gender and spectrum of sexuality. Whereas you know, many older people would just kind of say, well, you know, for gender, there is male and there is female and it's that simple and everything else is just complicating things and is, is not seeing the world as it is. And then young people hearing that kind of confusion or, or, you know, which is just, which is a genuinely expressed thing. I think I don't hear confusion. They hear prejudice. Yeah. And so you've got these two conversations happening that are actually, people aren't even hearing each other having the conversation anymore because there's just, as I say, you've got a, a, you know, a, a generation of people who grew up where gender was just simple and straightforward and, and you could be secure in that belief and a generation that's been brought up with an idea of it being complex and who have just absorbed it and are perfectly comfortable with it mm-hmm. and who find challenges to that kind of threatening. So some of it, 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 it as I say, it's, it's, it's about the fact that, you know, the way we talk about it, the stories that we have to talk about it are, are, and- are just different. And really that just, that comes down to model of reality. Completely. Yeah, completely. And this is, I think the issue is that we lack a shared model of reality. Now we always have our own individual ways of coming at things and our own individual model of reality. But if, as, if we're going to hold together as a society, we have to agree on something. Mm. Um, and, and we have to agree what we're, what we're trying to do, where we're going towards somehow. Now it's important not to 
to overdo that because I think, you know, if you look at past times when we would have thought about having social cohesion, if you look back to the 1950s in the UK and you might think, well, we had a, a clear sense then there was a the post-war consensus in social cohesion. But, you know, if you were gay, there wasn't a role for you in that. If you were black, you know, on one of the Windrush generation, there, you know, there wasn't much of a role for you in that. So let's not overdo how good that social cohesion was in the past. But that is one of the challenges now, now that we're recognizing those kinds of things more and we're making sp- more space for everyone to feel part of it. That gives us a bigger challenge to find a framework that can hold all of that together, I think. Mm. I mean, might not be something that we can answer today between ourselves, but can we look back to a time when we can say, oh, this was an era of of optimum social cohesion? I, I think it really depends on whose point of view you take. Again, really. Model of reality, yeah. Model of reality, absolutely. Yeah, because I think there were times when we probably did have. I mean, you know, there were there were forces that pushed a social cohesion together. So, you know, you could argue, for instance, that, you know, the, the dominance of Christianity in the West, for instance, created models of, of social cohesion. You know, everyone believed more or less the same God and in worshipping in the same way for quite a while until the Reformation happened. But then, you know, under the pressure of that, if everyone feeling the same, then the Reformation does happen and you get hundreds of years of horrendous violence across Europe as a result. So it's quite difficult. I think when we look back to the past, we smudge out all those difficulties and we see you know, the the easy picture to to grasp and hold. So I doubt there was ever a point when it worked perfectly. And I think it's something we're always working towards. I think the issue at the moment is we've forgotten that's what it it is we're trying to work towards to an extent. Mm -hmm. And and if I look at some of the, some of the analysis at the moment, some of the, some of the philosophical writings that are happening right now, I think some of the best analysis for me is this idea that to an extent we've forgotten what society's for. I mean, why do we do this? Why do we live together like this? Why do we all band together, you know, 60 odd million people in the UK as part of one country? Why do we share our resources in this way? Why do we live next door to neighbours who, you know, might suddenly grow Lalandii that block out our sunlight? Why don't we just all go off and live by ourselves? Why don't we all just split away and live completely separately? And, and part of the answer to that is, well, it's because human beings aren't solitary creatures. We need other people, you know, in order to meet our needs, we have to be needs for community. We need a community around us. We need to be connected to other people. Otherwise it has a really negative impact on us. But actually I think that question about, well, what society for is kind of where I then arrived. And that's not a new thought. And many, many people have thought, you know, more intelligent than me have arrived at that thought and come up with much better answers than anything that I'll ever conjure up. But I think it's an interesting place to get to. I, the parallel I draw is with the writings of, of Alistair McIntyre. In the early 1980s, wrote this book called After Virtue, where he talked about the fact that one of the reasons we struggle to understand what's right or wrong anymore, one of the reasons we struggle with the idea of morality is that we've forgotten that morality had a purpose. And he talks about the fact that in the writings of the ancient Greeks, and actually you can see it in, in other writings around well, the same time, so you can, you can see it in, in kind of um, philosophical writings from China, for instance. There's this idea that morality kind of has is a three-stage thing. So we come into the world half-formed as human being. So we have some things already laid down, but we have to develop. So the second stage is we then have to grow and to develop. And what we grow and develop to do is to live virtuous lives. So we grow and we develop so that we can be virtuous. And by being virtuous and by learning to take pleasure in acting in a virtuous way, we then will also have well-being. And that 
having a society full of people who are trying to act virtuously will then create a society which is good for the well-being of everyone. And that's what morality then is for. Morality is, is to achieve that. What then happens is Christianity comes along and that third bit gets replaced. So we then we're growing and developing in order to please God. So we're going to live in this way in order to please God. And then as Christianity starts to wane and starts to lose its influence, for a while we're left with the kind of narratives that Christianity gave us, but it gradually fades. And so we end up with kind of moral relativism and this idea that, well, you know, morality is just about what the things that you like. So if you if you hear a story and it makes you feel good, it was morally good. And if you hear a story and you feel if it makes you feel bad, then it was morally bad. Because actually there's nothing to hold it down. And that's because we've forgotten the purpose of what it's for. And I think there's a similar thing that can this kind of happen in regards to society. We've we've stopped really talking about what society's for and why we all band together and why we why we do this thing. And so we end up not talking about the actual thing we need to be. We're not, it's kind of like in therapy where you're, you're not really focused on the real cause of the problem. You know, you can do an awful lot of good work to help somebody manage what's going on, but if you're not really dealing with the actual problem, you're not going to get to a real solution for them in the future. Mm -hmm. So if I think about what you're saying, then it's, we've moved from a place of virtue, which I guess is, and correct me if I'm wrong, the, the balance between our desires and, and our needs and reaching a, a positive result, mm. the good of the wider community. Yeah. So we've, we've, we've moved from that with the different layers that have been added and diluted over the years to a place that is perhaps much more self-centered and self-serving. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's right. And I think it's happened in a way because of trying to answer that question. For me, the best answer is, you know, going back to exactly what you were just talking about, which is Aristotle's argument that societies exist to promote and maintain the well-being of their citizens so that they can flourish. I mean, he talked about eudaimonia, which means being in your good demons, which is a phrase I really like, actually. But but we translate that mainly as flourishing these days. So 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 that if we if a society is promoting the well-being of its citizens, they'll be flourishing. And actually, that's why societies exist. They exist because in order to do that. And I think what happened was. In, in trying to come to an answer to that question, things kind of developed over the last few hundred years and particularly through the 20th century to, to a point where we thought we had an answer to that. And the answer was about individual freedom, which was incredibly important coming out of the, the idea of, of, of the Renaissance and the Reformation, this idea of individual liberty and particularly liberty of choice that then was provided through market economics, that we would have a meritocracy that would then allow people to grow and develop, to achieve their level of ambition so that they could then have the money and the resources they need to acquire the things they wanted. So the liberty of their choice through market economics, they would make rational choices because human beings were seen as, ma as making rational choices, using the finances at their resources to buy the things that they wanted, which would then lead to them being, being happy. And, and, and having good well-being. And this then is what society kind of got structured around. And then the, the economy then became kind of a, the focal point. And this was what happened on the left and the right. This wasn't a, just a, you know, it can't be attributed to either political side because Marx on the one hand made said the, you know, the workers taking control of the own means of production would mean that they were in control of the economy and their destiny. On the other side, you had people like Hayek saying that actually the free market was the way that you protected individual freedom and prevented slavery and serfdom. So then the economy became the main role of government. You know, when new governments come in, it becomes, well, the key role is to promote growth. 
because it's through growth that we'll be able to promote individual wealth. People will then be able to access the market and buy the things that they want. And that then will lead to everyone's well-being going up. But we kind of forgot in the background that that, that original question still sat there. And that actually then this just became our reality. And actually, that's this is just one of the ways in which people think about how you meet your well-being. This is what's called desire-based theory of well-being, which is that our well-being arises from being able to meet our own desires. If you want something and you get it, then you're happy. The problem, of course, is a lot of the scientific research is pointing out that actually that just doesn't work in terms of well-being. Buying things doesn't really make you happy. It doesn't really increase your well-being. If you don't have enough money, more money absolutely increases your well-being. But once you reach a stage where you're not having to worry about feeding yourself or keeping a roof over your head or what happens if I lose my job, once you get to a point where you're comfortable enough to not have to worry about disaster hitting you, then actually increasingly extra money and extra stuff has a less and less of a positive impact on your well-being. So actually that's that's not going to do it. And particularly in a society I mean, at the moment, we have a cost of living crisis and lots of people are struggling, but, you know, hopefully we'll go over this and, and come back to where we were not very long ago, where in the main, we were an affluent society. We can argue about how well distributed that affluence was, but as a society overall, we were an affluent society, but still higher levels of depression, higher levels of unhappiness, because this wasn't really working anyway. So we have to then kind of look around and think, well, what are these? Now in philosophy, there's kind of four ways of thinking about well-being. Desire-based is one of them. Utilitarian is the other one. That gets most of the attention. And this is the idea that well-being comes from getting more pleasure and less pain. And Jeremy Bentham, who originally had come up with this idea, he said any pleasure would do it. He, you know, like a game of pushpin is as, as valuable as the pleasure you might take from poetry. John Stuart Mill after him said, well, no, there's two different types of pleasure. There's pleasure that's meaningful. And then there's pleasure that's just coming from those kind of things like, you know, gambling or games and things like that. More recently, other utilitarians like Paul Dolan have added purpose to this. And they've said, well, actually, well-being arises from getting pleasure and purpose in your life. But that's that kind of view that, you know, it's those one or two specific things. And then beyond that, you've got two other things, the areas that I think are quite interesting. One is this idea of list-based ideas of well-being, which is that well-being arises from meeting a specific list of stuff. And there are different lists. People will know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but you can see them in positive psychology, for instance, has that list of PERMA. So you can see lots of different lists. And of course, we, have- those, we, we do have a list, absolutely <laughs> human givens. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the challenge is, well, that is, well, why, how, how can you justify that specific list? And is there a hierarchy? So, you know, is, is one of those things on the list more important than others, for example? If we go, um, you meant it wasn't Maslow, there was it, that set out the hierarchy. He, no. he set out his list and then somebody else manipulated it into a hierarchy. Yeah, it was done in a business journal, funnily enough. Someone trying to explain Maslow's ideas through a business journal created the pyramid that we all know today. Maslow really did not like the pyramid. So if you're using the pyramid to explain Maslow's hierarchy of needs to people, you're not using Maslow's work. And actually, he himself really questioned whether there was actually a hierarchy. He was very dubious about that idea. So, but again, it just shows that whenever you're putting out any kind of list together, you've got to have some really solid answers to to why that list and why and and how it's organized. And then the last one is that this idea of what's called perfectionist ideas, which is that we we reach well-being when our we're, we're at our most perfectly human. When we, when we do the thing that which is where, where we're most human. And I guess artists and human givens kind of ties those last two things together, that it's, it's kind of list-based and, and, and it's put together because our model of needs, you know, if you look at the evidence, when people get those needs met, then they are able to flourish so that they're able to reach that kind of top level stage of flourishing because those needs are being met. 
I should say there's also two models in psychology of well-being, at least two other models. So, you know, there's real arguments about what it is that actually brings well-being about, which makes this whole question about how society can support well-being really complicated. But but that, I guess, was was I was reading all of this stuff, trying to think about this. And the challenge, I guess, with all of it is you can't come up with a framework that takes aside because what we're looking for is something that can that can give us a shape to look at the world that allows us to still debate and discuss and disagree and research and figure this out. If it determinately says, oh, no, you know, we're going to take a left wing or a right wing approach to all of this, then actually we're not really giving an approach that takes in the diversity of human thought. And the other thing is we've got to have a framework that takes in the whole diversity of human experience as well and the diversity of the society that we have now. But like we were talking about earlier on for the complexity, again, I think Lisa Feldman Barrett, she talks about, you know, having to take a Darwinian approach to, to population level thinking. And what that means is when you think about what would people do in X circumstance, you can't just come up with one answer because people will do a hundred different things in response to one stimulus because that's who we are. And it's a real strength of the species because it means that the species is adaptable. It means that if a disaster struck tomorrow, if a meteor struck the earth tomorrow, like it, you know, like it did for the dinosaurs, if we had only one way of responding to that as a species, we would be very vulnerable because if that one way didn't work, we'd be wiped out. But if you've got a hundred ways of responding to it, and, and different people go off doing different things, then some people will perish, unfortunately, but some will survive and therefore the species will survive. So actually... Diver- All of those different responses are informed by, by learning. Exactly. By those different experiences that we have as people, by the things that we individually and as communities learn. And as a result of all of that, as a species, we're so much stronger. Diversity is actually our strength. Our complexity is the strength that we bring. And it's why we've become the dominant species. It's that adaptability that's made us dominant. So as a society, having diversity is is really helpful because it it makes you adaptable. It means when the the environment outside changes, as a society, you're more likely to be able to change. You know, there was a time when what what was really valuable was having people who were really good at metalwork because that was the dominant technology. It's less helpful now. Now it's really helpful if you've got lots of good people who are good at developing software. But back when metal work was the dominant thing, having a software engineer wasn't particularly useful because we didn't have computers and we didn't have software. So actually being having a diversity so that actually as different things arise and fall, you can respond to all of that is really helpful. But of course, it creates a challenge because how do you make that cohesive? And I think I I really like this Chinese idea, this Confucian idea of harmony. Now, in the West, we interpret the idea of societal harmony as being about uniformity and that it's it's being imposed on us. But actually, from from the Confucian perspective, harmony comes from the, the metaphor that gets used is if you think about an orchestra, lots of different instruments playing different notes at different times in a different rhythm, and it produces music. It produces the harmony of the music. And actually, that's how society needs to work. We need to make space for all of this diversity to come together to produce music. But of course, it only does that if we're all playing the same piece. And, and I think that's, that's the challenge. How do, what, what's this piece? What, that, that's actually going to allow us to have this social cohesion whilst protecting individual freedom. Because that, again, is the thing that all you know, philosophers, back to Aristotle, up through you know, Rousseau, Bertrand Russell, all the way up to today, is that there's this tension in any society between social cohesion on the one hand and individual freedom on the other. Because we've seen attempts to impose social cohesion in people is like communist 
Russia, you know, and, and the Soviet Union. And actually that, that attempt to squash individual freedom was horrendous for people's well-being. But equally, we've seen with this experiment in the West that actually abandoning social cohesion completely to push for individual freedom actually results in this kind of fragmentation. And, you know, just look at the, the even before the pandemic, loneliness was dramatically on the rise in the West. So actually we've got to figure out a way of how do we pull it all together? What's the framework which allows us to find the balance point between social cohesion and individual freedom if we're really going to create a society that supports the well-being of everyone? So working together as the collective good of society being the goal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That that question of what is the common good, um, I think, is a, is a really important part of this. Yeah, absolutely. So how do we do that? Well, this then is where I think human givens can offer us something. Um, because if we think about, about the, where, as I say, human given, sit, it sits as a kind of list-based, a perfectionist, a teleological idea that, that can think about if, we, if human beings can get their needs met in a healthy balance, then actually they can flourish. So can we do that within our society? And it's interesting, I'm seeing more and more in the social sciences, more and more in the research, people starting to talk about the idea of needs. So that idea of needs is becoming more and more accepted overall. But I say, as well as thinking about in communities, we, individuals, we need to think about how do we support community as well? Because actually, if you think about it, I mean, can you think about the last time any government did anything deliberately to strengthen community? <laughs> you know, it, it's really hard to get to think about it because we've thought about the economy so much. Everything became about individuals and became about the economy. Even schooling, even education comes down to we're preparing people to find a role in the economy and, and to meet the needs of the economy. Everything is then kind of seen through that individual economic lens. So actually, so we need to think about how we do that. So one of the first things I think the human humans gives us, I think, is, and it draws on, on old philosophies to get us here, is this idea of healthy balance. This idea that you're not looking for a perfect point of balance. And I think that's really useful because one, it takes us away from the extremes, first of all. So we can't stay in our extreme views on either side of the argument. We have to acknowledge that actually the truth is going to be somewhere in the messy middle, somewhere where the nuance is. We've actually got to walk into that complicatedness in the middle to work out where the healthy balance point is going to be. But also that that we're not looking. I mean, Aristotle and producers all talked about this, about, you know, the... You know, they, they would talk about the fact that if you think about generosity, for instance, the balance point between being, uh, you know, generosity and, and the two extremes of that would be miserliness on the one hand and being spendthrift and just giving your money away on the other hand. And neither of those places is good to be. But actually, generosity is more towards giving your money away in a reckless way than it is towards miserliness. The balance point isn't in the middle. And our recognition that in different circumstances, the balance point will be in different places. So different people will have a different healthy balance. And as their lives go on, their point of healthy balance might shift and change. And different communities will have a different point of healthy balance. And as the environment around them changes, that point of healthy balance might shift and change. So that actually, this needs to be quite a flexible thing. Or whatever our framework is, it needs to be quite flexible. And then I think there's two other things that Human Givens adds to those other needs theories that, that are around. One is this idea of resources. Because I think that takes us back to this idea that human beings need to be constantly growing and developing. There's never a point when we're done, mm. when we're, that's it, we're there. We always have to be growing. And if you think about the work of someone like Tal Ben-Sahara, who talks about that fact that, that achieving things and getting things actually doesn't make you happy. You can work towards something for 10 years thinking it's going to make you happy and then you get it. And there's a kind of anticlimax or it might make you happy for a little while and then it fades quite quickly because we normalize stuff. 
And that actually well-being and happiness really derives from the pleasure we take to, in working towards things that give us purpose. So we've got to be constantly growing and developing. And that really means we've got to be constantly learning how to use our innate resources and developing our life resources. So all those things that we're born with, you learning how to use our imagination in a healthy, positive way, learning how to step back into our observing self so that we can really see the circumstance that we're looking at with all of the reality that's in there and all the messiness that's in there, learning to balance our emotions and our rational thinking. So learning all of that and all of that's a constant ongoing challenge, as well as learning the skills we need for, for, for where we are right now. Sorry. I was just going to say, it's, it's being able to use those resources in a healthy way. That's kind of our superpower for adaptability, really, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it is. Because it's one of the things that makes us so adaptable is that we come into the world with those resources, but how we use them then gets determined by our environment. If you think about, you know, our ability to learn language, you know, most of us are born with the ability to learn language, but the language we learn is entirely dependent on our environment. And the same thing will be true with all those other resources, you know, the level of emotional expression that you learn massively depends on the culture that you're born into. I mean, again, there are you know, social constructive arguments that would say that actually the emotions that you have are determined by the culture and environment that you're born into. So there's this interplay between the environment and what we're born into. And, and, and that then again, makes us as individuals and as communities really adaptable. And so we have that sense in human givens that actually, yes, we come into this world half formed exactly as those kind of original virtue theories would have it. And then we need to grow and to develop in order to meet our own needs and to help other people meet, meet their needs, because that then creates community where we're all able to get our needs met. And then the other really important bit that Human Givens gives us in order to be able to think about this is the idea of barriers. And I think that, that those idea of barriers are actually incredibly revolutionary, the Human Givens idea of three barriers, because if you read the literature, as I do a lot, and a lot of the arguments and the discussions around mental health, there's huge disagreement and huge argument spoken about in really emotional terms about what is it that creates mental illness. And for everything from it's an illness, it's biological, it's, it's, you know, it's within the individual to it's nothing to do with biology. It's environmental, it's social, it's about social justice. And again, you look at all of those things in between, like, well, how do we join up all of this stuff, like the impact of the physical environment around us, the impact of inequality, you know, there are lots and lots of things you can point at that clearly have a causative role in developing mental illness or good mental health. And it's a really com complex, confusing picture until you put the three barriers on top of it. And you realize that actually everything that gets talked about in the literature falls into one of these three barriers. So first of all, the environment. The environment can be a place where we get our needs met and it can be uh, incredibly nourishing or it can be toxic and it can create problems and barriers to us being able to meet our needs. So that can come down to physical things. So there's really interesting paper published recently identifying that the quality of housing that people live in has an impact on mental illness. It's not a surprise, but really solid research demonstrating that the quality of, the, of what you live in, we've, we see the, the impact of the natural world, more and more literature showing that the more contact you have with the natural world, the better your level of well-being tends to be. From a societal point of view, there's then a whole series of of interesting and difficult questions for us to think about because it's quite clear that inequality, you know, we used to think about this idea that actually it didn't matter what the level of inequality was as long as the people at the lower end had what they needed. Actually, it's become increasingly clear that an unequal society creates a lack of cohesion and impacts on things like our need for status and our need for, you know, that need for value. 
and our need for community and connection and actually therefore has a negative impact on mental health. So how do we how do we tackle that? A, a that, huge you know, the, of shared model of reality as well. Completely, because at different ends of that inequality scale, people just see the world completely differently. And what justice is seems completely different from different ends of those that, that world. You think about physical environment, you think about the fact that, you know, it's quite clear that pollution has an impact on mental health. That's an interesting challenge for us to think about. How do we have social cohesion without forcing it, without forcing people into roles that they don't want or they don't feel comfortable with? How do you leave, how do you have social cohesion whilst leaving space for people to still be free and express themselves and express their difference? Those are challenging questions. Um, I'm not necessarily going to try and answer them all today, but, but actually having this framework helps us to kind of position those. Second thing then, the second barrier that we identify then being potential harm. So harm to those kind of internal guidance systems. So the first question being, well, how do we reduce the number of people who experience that? How do we reduce the number of people who experience trauma in their lives? Or, or that kind of conditioning, which is results in them uh, having behaviours and ways of engaging with other people that actually get in the way of them being able to meet their own needs. And then on the other end of that, how do we support those people who need help when they need it? It's a really interesting thing when you when you read about anthropologists looking at prehistory and when they identify civilization, when they believe civilization has, you know, they can look back at fossil records and go, civilization arrived. The thing that they highlight is finding broken bones that have healed because that means somebody was injured and somebody else looked after them. And that's the mark of civilization. How we look after each other when we need support is what identifies, you know, how civilized we are. So how do we do that? And then finally, that question about growth and development, how do we ensure people have the skills and continue to keep developing skills over the course of their life and insight and knowledge and understanding so that they as individuals and as communities are able to then use their resources to meet their needs. And again, there's a whole question about balance. I mean, this then thinks about when you think about what do we do with our education system, if you shift it away from thinking about how do we arrange our education system to get what the economy needs towards how do we arrange our education system to ensure that people have the skills, understanding, knowledge, and ability to work as individuals and as communities to, to use their resources to meet their needs in balance. That's that's a completely different question. Uh, absolutely. And we, we've moved uh, so far away in education of focusing on the skills and the resources of the individual and towards pushing them into, into things where they feel that pretty much all of their needs are compromised in that, their need for, you know, status. <laughs> so I, I guess it's, um you know, it, it's kind of like the, the Einstein quote isn't it that you know if you judge a fish by its ability to to climb a tree you know and, and all that yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely you're gonna feel like a failure aren't you <laughs> absolutely yeah completely and so much of our education system certainly in this country is now very focused on you know passing the end of school exams yeah there's no no inculcating the love of learning there's no building skills for lifelong learning it's and that's not the fault of teachers by the way you know teachers you know one of the reasons we get so much burnout in the teaching profession is teachers themselves don't like this but it all comes back to that original framework which is that actually if we train people to be able to pass the exams then they'll be able to go to university or get the job that they need then they'll be able to earn the money that they need to buy the stuff that will therefore make them happy and therefore lead to the good well-being it all comes out of that original thought process in response to what we as a society need to do and and that isn't working but i think if we can shift that and if we and if we could you could like you know i think the human givens framework is a really I mean, I've been working with it for years. I know you have as well. And I mean, Andrew Morris talks about, you know, trying to break it for years and not being able to, um, because it's such a strong, flexible model. It's such a strong, flexible theory that fits with who we are as human beings and poses the difficult questions. 
It doesn't give you all of the answers. It, so it has flexibility within it, but it doesn't force you into one particular set of answers. And it allows you to move away from those extreme rigid views and, and forces you to step into that messy nuance in the middle, because there isn't one way to do this that's going to be right for everybody. So how do you find that best balance point for society that allows everyone to get their needs met and, and really genuinely everyone to get their needs met, including that need for autonomy and control and freedom and those needs for community with a diverse population? Yeah. And I guess, of course, it's got that flexibility to adapt to, to new learnings, to new understandings, and it's constantly evolving. So to steal a steal and misuse a phrase from Matt Haig, you know, it's having a framework that's baggy enough to live in. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that, that's a very well, nice way to put it, actually. And I think that's that's kind of, I guess, what we need at a societal level as well. You know, how what, what we need as a society, a framework that's baggy enough to hold the diversity of our society, the diversity of thought and opinion, but still give us a way forward that we can agree on. Still give us something to focus on that we can at least, that we can all think, if we reach there, it would be a better place. Now we can disagree about how to get there. We can have arguments. We can do research to try and prove what would be the best way to get there. We can we can try and work it out and we can do trial and error as we go along. But at least we have we know where we're going. If we if we were focused on a society in which people constantly grew and developed so that they were able to use their own resources as individuals and as communities to meet their needs in a healthy balance that was right for them in that moment, wouldn't that be a great place to be as a society? Yeah. And if that was the question we asked ourselves, and if our politicians came into power asking that question, would we get better answers and better leaders? And that for me feels like quite an, an exciting possibility. It does. And it, it, you know, totally revolutionary that everybody comes in with a shared purpose rather than coming in to undo what the predecessor did. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. If we looked at, we were, and there have been periods in the past where, there was a bit of that. I mean, there was a post-war consensus where there were shades of opinion around something, but there was a general consensus in a way in which we we're moving forward, which I think was helpful. And, and you know, all those other things that you would look like at economic growth and so on. Actually, levels of economic growth were much higher during that period of post-war consensus than they have been since. Levels of individual wealth grew. Levels of social mobility were higher. So even if you did want to take it back to those economic factors, actually that post-war consensus was much more successful than what we've had since from an economic point of view and from a well-being point of view. Now, again, that paradigm broke down. And we also have to acknowledge that this is what happens. You know, we, we create an answer to the story, to the question. We have a new story and that story allows us to pursue the future and is really profitable and works for a while. And then over time, it stops working because no model can do everything. But and, and as human beings, we tend to take things to extremes. So we go too far in one direction and then we have to check and come back the other way. But I think if we if we can get a, a more flexible model if, and, and, and one which actually is focused on who we are as human beings rather than thinking about us as economic actors, then I think it's more likely to get us there. And I think the other thing that we can take back is we can also then take this back into different parts of society. So we can come back and think about workplace. And if you're thinking about the workplace being a, a, a good place for well-being, it's not enough to just provide yoga and mindfulness classes, which lots of workplaces do. And it's great that they do, but it, that's not going to do it on its own because that's just one thing. That's just about you helping develop some skills in your employees. You've also got to think about, is there anything in the workplace causing harm that you need to stop doing? What's the support you need to provide to those people who might have experienced harm? So, you know, employer counseling services and stuff. But then the really difficult question is, and what's happening in the environment in the workplace? Mm -hmm. 
that what's happening in the culture of the workplace that's actually either supporting or not supporting the well-being, because actually that's going to be crucial. You can provide whatever support you want and help people learn their individual skills to build resilience, although it's a phrase I don't like. But actually, if the environment's toxic, your employees are still going to end up ill and going off work and your productivity rates are going to go through the floor and all of those kinds of things. So actually, if you're going to, and this is the thing that I think in the, in the University of Mental Health Charter, you've got to tackle those three things. You've got to tackle environment and culture. You've got to provide support for those who need it. And you've got to help individuals and communities develop their skill and their ability to respond to change and be able to use their resources to meet their needs. And in any part of society, in any organization, you've got to do all three of those things if you're seriously going to have a real impact on well-being and mental health. Absolutely. There was a really interesting article last week, actually, um, about mental health crisis. Is it actually an environment crisis? Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- and I think there's a really strong argument for that, because if we can't get our needs met in the environment, we will become mentally ill. That's, that's you know, we go into distress, all living things. This is one of the, the foundational idea of human givens. All living things, when they cannot get their needs met, go into distress. You know, just think the plant behind me, when I forget to water it, it goes into distress because that's just what happens with living things. So if we're in environments where we can't get our needs met, we go into distress. It's a fairly simple, straightforward idea, but it's incredibly powerful and incredibly deep. And actually, if we made that the center of our focus, it might help us create societies where we were all a bit more happier. And interestingly, those societies that do seem to do this a bit more, where, where they are more balanced and where people are able to get their need for community met and feel they can trust their neighbours more and, you know, are, are just more generally able to get their needs met. They are generally happier societies. They have lower levels of mental illness. They have lower levels of conflict, higher levels of well-being. And so, you know, there are very, some very clear pointers towards the idea that actually doing this would be a useful thing for us. But, you know, adding the human givens model to it might, might bring some clarity that we didn't have before. Fantastic. Thank you so much. We're nearly out of time and I'm loath to say that, but is there anything else that you, you wanted to add? No, I don't think so. I think that, that, that covers it. I mean, this is just a sketch. And, and as I say, there are many people who have written better and spoken better about all of this. And so if people are interested, please do go and read those other people. You'll, you know, this is just, I think, throwing out thoughts sometimes and ideas could just be useful for discussion and, and ideas and, and hopefully that might lead some people to go and reading a little bit more, you know, go and read Aristotle, go and read some of those other philosophers who have written about it, go and read Michael Sundell, people like that, because you will learn a lot from it and it, it will enrich your understanding of the world. Gareth, thank you so much for sharing your musings and insights. And I thoroughly enjoyed it as always. And it's given me much food for thought, as I'm sure it has for our listeners too. If you'd like to explore the Human Givens approach and the training that we offer, including the diploma that both Gareth and I tutor on, you can find out more by visiting our website, the link for which will be included in the podcast description. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>